Chapter 21. The Office. To get to my apartment from anywhere, I passed innumerable people. They were of all shapes and sizes. Most were hurrying, invariably running to the nearest subway shop. It was the rare person who was not glued to their cell phone. Blackberry devices had come into use, and people were either staring, texting, or talking. Oddly, some were just sitting or lying on the sidewalks. They were often wrapped in a dirty blanket or sweater and positioned on cardboard. They had a McDonald's cup in front of them and a cardboard sign asking for money, and the signs always ended with, God bless. I came to learn that these folks were called homeless. I had never known a homeless person. When I was a kid, we had one for a brief time in Sugar Hill, but his situation was so temporary it didn't compare with the faces I recognized daily in Manhattan. I hadn't known him personally, but Dexter McTavish had returned home to Sugar Hill from Vietnam, battered and bruised and on the wrong track. Someone mentioned he was suffering from PTSD, but I wasn't sure what that was. Every day for a week or so, he would sit on the sidewalk in front of the local Piggly Wiggly supermarket, asking what time it was, asking for money, asking ladies young and old for a date. One of his relatives in Gallatin, Tennessee, found out about it and came and got him. We heard they took him to the VA hospital up near Nashville somewhere for help, but that was all the information we had. The folks here in New York were long-term street residents, complete with their own culture, system, and coping mechanisms. It didn't appear to me that their relatives would come around anytime soon. I'm sure there were many different reasons as to why these folks were homeless. Some had gotten sick, couldn't work, and couldn't make the sky-high payments required of all who were trying to live and survive in the city. I even caught myself wondering, is this going to be me one day? Did the guy who had the previous sports writer job at the Post end up on a sidewalk somewhere, out of money and out of a job? I knew this was not a productive line of reasoning, as there was no way to know, but it did make me wonder. Others were no doubt victims of abuse of some kind, spousal abuse, sexual abuse, random violence. They'd fallen out of favor with family and had nowhere to go. Others were mentally ill and in the midst of that illness were struggling with the compound problems of drug and alcohol abuse. Money was needed to support those habits. Some were just no doubt down on their luck, as the old saying went, found themselves trying to survive by begging. I was overwhelmed at the daily sight of them. I even found prejudice rising within as I considered their plight. Were they really in need, or were they hucksters, posers, trying to make us think they were down on their luck, when in reality, they could clean up nicely and actually pull in more money than I could at a decent job. I was on a subway once, and a man noticed that I'd given money to someone who asked for it. In my orientation in New York, I saw that some gave money to those who rode the rails and went through the subway cars, one after the other, and asked. Most everyone ignored them. I gave some to a beggar one day. A bystander on the train asked me, with disdain, Did he thank you? I said that he had. It was a mumbled thanks, but I had helped him, and he responded. The bystander berated me. He said, Those guys are con artists. They live a life of deceit and trickery, make you think they're in need. Their job is to trick you.
he repeatedly scolded me. I listened and absorbed his info, trying to fast forward as to how I would respond next time when asked. It didn't matter to me that all their money was tax-free, off the record. Mine, I would soon learn, was ridiculously taxed. Howard Usher, the man who hired me, had failed to mention that point. So my prejudice towards the homeless was fueled by suspicion. I knew I was not coping with their presence because I had moved away from my original posture of compassion. At first, I would stop to ask if they needed anything, listen to their predicament story, and occasionally hand over a $20 bill and a pat on the shoulder. Then I began ignoring them, failing to make eye contact and just keep on moving. I realized this was my own method of survival. I didn't know their stories and most likely never would. I wouldn't get to the bottom of why they were in this mess. My prejudice was activated and I insulated myself from them. In my mental struggle and self-justification with what was right and what was wrong and interacting with them, I figured it was easier to just keep moving. Someone would take care of them and solve their plight. I didn't have the resources to do so. Besides, if I kept passing out greenbacks, I'd soon be on the sidewalk with them. That was a bigger concern to me than what they were going to do with the occasional $5 bill I grudgingly handed over. After taking a week to adjust to my new living arrangements, I found my way to the post. I had ridden the trains for a week and was getting semi-familiar with the iconic subway system. I was now aware, due to the mishap of getting on a train on the wrong side of the tracks and feeling that I'd never get off, that it was easy to go uptown when you meant to go downtown, or jump on a local, which made stops at all the stations instead of going express, which went directly to where I was headed. I learned which trains went to the Bronx, and which to the Staten Island Ferry, and which ones eventually led to JFK Airport, and also that none went to LaGuardia. The differences in the 1 and 2 trains, and the A, C, and D trains, the change of trains at Times Square or Grand Central Station, all were part of the New York living experience. I wouldn't say that in a week I was comfortable, but I wasn't overwhelmed. I at least knew enough to ask semi-intelligent questions of the station clerk, especially when apartment hunting and looking for the best station that was nearest to where I was going. It was all part of my continuing education of life. At the front desk of the post, I got fingerprinted. Just for our records, so we know for sure who you are. I got my picture security badge for clearance and access to the building. I filled out some paperwork, and then I was escorted into the office of my new boss, Howard Usher. He looked exactly as I imagined he would. He was short, overweight with his shirt falling out of a not-so-tightly-pulled-up pair of pants, unkempt hair, and a cigar permanently attached between his teeth, lit or unlit. On introduction, he coughed and grumbled and complained about the subways, the weather, the guy selling hot dogs at the corner who didn't give him the right change, but heck, I just gave it to him. I'm sure he needs it, but I'll probably go somewhere else next time. And as he rambled on, he even smiled. I wasn't expecting the smile. Everything in New York seems so much like bustle and hurry and deadlines. And Why are you talking to me? Do I know you? My first impression was there didn't seem to be much room or reason for smiling, but I was wrong. Usher on first appearance was gruff, but the more I sat there with him, 
I thought he was more like a teddy bear. Two guys in the newsroom were smiling and making jokes and excitingly banging out copy on a laptop as they bantered about back and forth. Maybe, I thought, it was a provocative op-ed piece. A young lady was answering the phone with a smile. Was it a lunch date she'd been hoping for? Or did her $500 apartment application fee just get accepted? Seeing people smile helped me to relax. Usher began the orientation. Glad you made it, Thompson. Good trip up? Find a place to live okay? I answered affirmatively without a lot of detail or a reprisal of Mr. Rocky Top's sprint through ATL. And from what I had experienced in my first few days of New York City life, I didn't want to give the impression that as a Southerner, I knew a lot more about how they should run things around here than they did. So I kept it light and moved on. Need something to drink? Can I get you a tea? Aha, the old tea trick. The one that comes in a cup with a bag attached to a string that hangs over the edge into a saucer. No, sir, I wouldn't fall for that one again. No, thanks. Glass of water be nice, though. Usher pressed a button on his telephone. Missy, could you bring Thompson here a glass of water? Thanks. Without a word, but with a faint smile and a glance at me, she deposited the glass and returned to her desk. Young, pretty, easy on the eyes, but didn't appear overly happy to run this errand. I swear we run that girl ragged. Don't know what we do without her around here. She puts up with a lot in this office full of testosterone, if you know what I mean. I try to protect her as much as I can. She's kind of, kind of like a daughter to me. You got questions about the city, Thompson, just ask Missy. She can help you. I nodded. Good info. I have questions daily and lots of them. I'll have to feel out Missy to see if she is as willingly helpful as Usher intends her to be. Let's get down to business. You got checked in at the front desk and all cleared and ready to go. True? Yes, checked in and ready. That took my social security number, so I guess that goes with the paycheck system. Usher didn't acknowledge that comment, but plowed ahead. Thompson, we've been waiting on you. I want to see what this Southern boy is going to do with this football crazy loyal readership that we got. I figured a writer from Iron Bowl country knows how to handle rivalries. You're just in time. This weekend is the rivalry game, Jets against the Giants. Kick off the Meadowlands in Jersey Sunday at 1 p.m. Be a good idea to go to some practices this week, get acquainted. You probably won't get to the head coaches or in the locker rooms of the stage, but at least you can meet a few assistant coaches and press corps, key players, maybe even some players that are out of the limelight, but great stories, you know what I mean? And be thinking about a prediction of the final score. That's part of the intrigue in your daily columns leading up to the game. Wait, I would have a daily column? That was news. Whatever you predict, it'll make somebody mad. These are rabid fans, so get ready for it. Coming from Bama, you know about rabid fans, don't you? I'll say. There was this guy in my hometown named Old Man Parker. As I was saying, Thompson, ignoring my anecdote, pulling on his cigar, coughing up spit, and plunging ahead. You better think carefully about that final score prediction. The public will route some calls up here through Missy's telephone that'll make her blush and maybe cry. These folks love their jets and they love their giants. Just ask them. They'll say things in so many words in the clean version. 
Who do you think you are to predict the outcome? Are you off your rocker? You got a crystal ball? Don't remember you playing quarterback. Don't worry. They'll threaten to cancel the subscription of the paper and all that, but just do what you think is best. Call it like you see it. Write it from your gut, from your heart. You've been around the game, Thompson. You've got intuition. (coughs) One reason I brought you on is that you don't have any regional rivalry blood, from what I can tell. Am I right? You don't know the Giants will care if they win. That's true. Down south, we've had the Atlanta Falcons, but they've never excelled. Me and my friends followed them because they were the only team to follow. I remember some loved the old New York Jets because Joe Namath played for them, but that was about as far as pro football loyalty went. New Southern NFL teams sprang up like Tennessee and Carolina, but I'm going to guess the fan base is not what the Jets and Giants enjoy. Right again, Thompson. It's a whole different world up here. Just wait till the Jets play the Patriots or the Giants play the so-called America's team, the Dallas Cowboys. Talk about hate coming out front and center. I've seen guys looking like they were left for dead in the stands after a game. Admittedly, they probably drank too much, said some things, and got what was coming to them, especially since they were wearing the wrong colors. But still, they crossed the line. These lines are pretty well marked out around here. (laughs) Usher's description of pro football mania opened the door to a revelation. As I listened to him, I realized that During the week I'd been in New York, I hadn't heard anyone mention a local or regional college football rivalry. There were plenty of college teams in the area surrounding and near to New York City, but where were the rivalries? Where was the Iron Bowl-like intensity? I made a mental checklist while Usher rambled on about his first days on the job and how he gave his editor such poor copy he got sent to night school at NYU for remedial English. His professor there was not too helpful, and so on. I drifted away to thinking about some teams I was familiar with. Would Cornell versus Columbia, two New York State Ivies, two members of the Elite Eight, be a rivalry? I'd never heard of it. Couldn't recall it being mentioned on Sports Center. Fordham was a downtown NYC university, and I had met someone whose son played backup linebacker, but I knew nothing about a hated rival. Binghamton was a small school. Did they even have a football team? I knew of Binghamton, as it was the alma mater of one of my favorite sports writers that I would read regularly, Tony Kornheiser of the Washington Post. But I knew nothing about the university. Syracuse was probably the best football school in the state, and were admittedly upstate New York, which was different from NYC, and it even excelled recently in the 90s, and it often sent numerous players to the NFL, among them perhaps the greatest running back of all time, Jim Brown. But who is their version of an Iron Bowl opponent? And if they have one, was it an in-state rival or someone just in their conference, like a Clemson or Pittsburgh? I was drawing blanks. I concluded that there were no college football rivalries to speak of in this part of the country. But the pro football rivalries were real. I would have to make the adjustment to covering the play-for-pay boys rather than the student-athletes with marching bands, NCAA scholarships regulations, and Heisman Trophy talk. These guys talked about being all pro, free agents, the injured reserve list, getting a new long-term contract, and winning the Super Bowl. My interviewing and writing would need a new focus and a new context, and my paycheck would depend on it.
I didn't understand the basics of New York City food, drink, and apartment living. How would I cover this northern religion, pro football? Why did this new life experience suddenly feel more like a snake pit than a journalism job? One other thing, Thompson, and it's a big one. Been thinking about it. We need to give you a new name. Joe Billy. That's your given name. Yes, sir, it is. It's not going to fly up here in New York. Folks find out that's your name and you're from Alabama and they'll be skewering you, calling you Joe Hillbilly or some such foolishness. Going to be a distraction. New Yorkers love distractions. Just look at our politics. He paused for effect, studying my body language. I wanted to impress and appear that I was in control. I didn't blink. I was actually fine with my given name, though I admit it did sound a little rural and unsophisticated. I didn't need initials like a lawyer, yielding the name no one would ever connect me with. Joe B. Thompson, or worse, J. Billy Thompson. That was definitely out. I sure had been thinking, and he pressed on. <clears throat> what about just Joe Thompson? Never <coughs> 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 thought of a name change? Maybe to Joseph William Thompson? Sounds pretty distinguished. When they give you that Pulitzer one day, that name will be a winner. What do you think? I think Joe Thompson is fine. That will be my stage name here in New York. I'm all for a new start. Usher smiled, extended his hand, and deposited his cigar in its usual place between his teeth and waved me out the door to my cubicle. It was time for Joe Thompson to get to work and learn this crazy city and especially the high-dollar, bright-light sports mania that it represented. I would be a commentator, and I'd better be good. When I got to my cubicle, still thinking about Usher's assignment of my new identity, poetic justice and irony washed over me. My stage name was the name of my dad's brother, Uncle Joe, or who is better known as the amazing Uncle Moonpie, the ultimate Auburn fan. I wonder what he would think about my new persona, should he ever find out. How would he feel about his name now assumed by one of his nephews who was making a splash in an office near Times Square, not far from the annual New Year's Eve ball drop? Maybe he would send me a care package of Southern treats so that I wouldn't forget where I came from. Then again, Uncle Moonpie wasn't a care package kind of guy, so that probably wasn't going to happen. But it did provide at least a little humor in what was suddenly feeling like an ultra-pressurized environment, one in which I would have to deliver regularly and insightfully for a readership of potential millions. Gulp. I found myself praying, Lord, help me not to do anything stupid. Some folks say that stupid can't be fixed, so please keep me from being stupid. (laughs) 